Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one's season two, episode number 19 for Monday, June the 4th. 2018 Monday that's a weird thing to say always do these things on Friday but uh, the regularly scheduled Friday June the 1st 2018 edition of the Bobcast simply didn't happen so for that reason we call this the better late than never edition of the Bobcast the middle of the Stanley Cup final edition of the Bobcast and the third last episode of the season Bobcast episode so Anyways, here we are in a hotel room in Washington, D.C., um, getting ready for game four tonight. Um, that's where the rubber always hits the road in a 2-1 series, as I like to say. It's either going to be 3-1 after tonight or 2-2. If it's 2-2, it's a brand-new series. Vegas back to home ice. If it's 3-1, uh, Vegas in a deep, deep hole. It'll be difficult to come back from, but uh, that's what makes game four so intriguing. It's been a great cup final so far. Really enjoyed the games. I know a lot of people are off the Vegas bandwagon. Uh, we'll see what happens here in game four, but uh, I, uh, I've really been impressed with the hockey. It's been fun, physical, uh, lots of lead changes and uh, chaos and stuff coaches hate and hockey fans love. So enjoying that. So I think at this, uh, at this time of the year, it's important to celebrate the most important things um, and, and as we're in the midst of the Stanley Cup final and a lot of time spent in a hotel room and a lot of time traveling back and forth between Vegas and uh, Washington, D.C., we do need to celebrate the most important thing in the game right now, and that would be Netflix. Um, as regular Bobcast listeners know, I'm a big fan of Netflix. Uh, watch way, way, way too much of it. Um, but uh, obviously all this time spent on airplanes or hotel rooms allows me to get really caught up on a lot of different shows, and I love my Netflix recommendations, and so apparently to the Bobcast listeners because we get lots of uh, emails on those, and thanks for, there's so many people that thank me for introducing them to Peaky Blinders, uh, the, the Shelby family and how good that show is. So here's the, the latest recommendations based on all the, the crazy amount of Netflix viewing um, that I've been watching. Um, okay, first and foremost, um, Fauda. Um, I mentioned Fauda before as a tout, but season two, long-awaited season two, just recently came out, 12 episodes of season two, and I absolutely crushed that in no time whatsoever. Uh, by the way, the New York Times voted Fauda as the best international show of 2017. It's the story of Israeli special forces and versus Hamas, and uh, really good, dramatic, uh, difficult, all those things. And uh, so I highly recommend you get on season two of Fauda. And if you haven't seen season one, by all means, start it from the beginning. Now, you have the ability, obviously, on Netflix to listen to these things um, in English, I, I don't like it myself. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the dubbing. And, you know, the dubbing's not bad, but you can just tell that the actors speaking are not speaking in English, and so the, the audio doesn't match up with the video. So I'm, I'm a big subtitle guy. I have no problem with it whatsoever. Watching Narcos on Netflix kind of got me into the, hey, subtitles is not so bad. So anyways, uh, so there's a, a big recommendation on Fauda. Um, there's another one, and it was actually being released uh, two episodes a week for four weeks, but they're all out now. I think the final two episodes came out on May 31st, and that would be a British murder mystery, Harlan Coben's Safe. The uh, name of the show is S-A-F-E. Harlan Coben, I guess, is an author, and uh, he's had some other good stuff on Netflix. Harlan Coben's The Five was very, very good, a murder, British murder mystery. And so I highly recommend... Uh, 
safe. Uh, all eight episodes are available now. Uh, it's a nice self-contained unit. So uh, get yourself into that one if you can. I also, in the way of British copper shows, which everybody knows I love, um, I'd highly recommended in the past Broadchurch. Season one and season two were quite some time ago. But uh, in the last number of weeks or months, season three, eight episodes came out, and uh, I thought it was exceptional. So by all means, jump on the uh, season three of Broadchurch if you get the opportunity. And I happen to notice that in the coming soon, uh, Marcella or Marcella, I forget how to pronounce it, but this is yet another British copper show. Um, season two of Marcella is coming out on June the 8th. So something to look forward to. And if the uh, Stanley Cup final goes to uh, six or seven games, I'll be able to download Marcella and watch that on the, uh, the plane ride. So anyways, there's some, uh, there's some recommendations for you. This is not Netflix related, but uh, departing as I did for the Stanley Cup final, I was not at home when the final episode of the final season of the Americans was on, uh, on television. So that one is PDR'd at home and waiting for me. I can't wait to see how that one ends. A terrific series, The Americans. If, by the way, you haven't seen The Americans, which is, I think, on FX or Bravo or something, FX probably, um, on conventional, tele conventional cable television, um, by all means, get into The Americans. That's a, that's a great series. As I said, Game 4 of the Stanley Cup Final goes tonight. I guess I won't talk too much in detail about the Cup Final because depending on what happens in Game 4, uh, could it be well on its way to being over or just kind of starting. So whatever I have to say about it now, other than the fact, as I said before, I'm enjoying it immensely, um, probably uh, would get dated fairly quickly after tonight's game. So let, let's get into some questions, but obviously some that are related in some way or fashion to, uh, to the cup final. Uh, this one is from Liam. He says, hey, Bob, the NHL loves to tout its parity. The playoffs are highly competitive and anybody can win. But shouldn't parity mean that more teams do win? Since 2009, a whopping four teams have won the Stanley Cup, Pittsburgh, Chicago, L.A., and Boston. In that time, baseball, a sport with no cap, has had seven champions. The NFL's had nine. And the NBA, the league that supposedly has the least parity, has had six different championships teams. So what good is parity? If anybody can win, shouldn't more teams actually be winning? And uh, that from Liam. And it's actually an excellent point, Liam. And a lot of people who, who don't like the cap in the National Hockey League um, raise this point a lot. And, um, and it's true. Um, for the most part, you're, you're right. The same old, same olds win the cup. Obviously, when you sent this email to me on March 20th, um, that was very much the case. But here we are finally in a cup final where we're going to get new blood. And it doesn't get any newer than Vegas if they were to come back and win this thing. And even Washington, I mean, having been in the cup final in 1998 and then not being there again, they're the very definition of new blood, even though they're doing it with some old blood and a, and a veteran core that knows playoff failure like, like nobody does. Um, so it, that, that part of it, and I think we're probably on the cusp of a period of time when we're going to start to see um, new teams. I think what we saw from the Winnipeg Jets um, certainly is a, is a possibility for the future. Uh, Nashville looks like they're going to be good for, for quite some time. And I think I wouldn't rule out Pittsburgh winning another cup with Malkin and Crosby at the core. Um, probably a, people would think Chicago winning another cup with Taves and Kane leading the way is a long shot, but not entirely out of the question. But I think for the most part, we're probably seeing the, the sunset on, on a lot of those teams that have been front and center. I mean, Boston's doing a pretty good job of reloading. Um, they obviously didn't go as deep in the playoffs this year as they'd like, but there's a lot to like about their young core players like McAvoy and others, uh, Pasternak up front. So they may still be heard from in, in the years to come here. But I think there's, there's a real opportunity. And I don't know whether it's Toronto or Winnipeg or if Edmonton gets its proverbial you-know-what together. Um, but I, I do think we're probably seeing a, a phasing out of some of the, the, the teams that have been at the front and center of the cup for quite some time, and, and we're going to start seeing a lot more new blood. Now the question then becomes, do we see those same teams over and over again in this cap 
system where for five or seven years, you know, Winnipeg becomes a team that wins the cup two or three times over a five, seven or nine year period uh, remains to be seen. But uh, right now we'll be thankful for the fact that we do have some new blood. Next question comes from Dustin in Edmonton who says, hi, Bob, I understand that Pittsburgh made a background deal with Vegas prior to the expansion draft last year, agreeing to send a second round pick to Vegas in exchange for them agreeing to choose Marc-Andre Fleury in the expansion draft. I know there were a number of quality goaltenders available for Vegas to choose, but none of them had the pedigree or marketability of Fleury. It was almost certainly a foregone conclusion that Vegas would choose Fleury, and after they did choose him, they quickly made him their first star and the face of their franchise. So why did Pittsburgh feel it was necessary to include a second-round pick as well? Even if there was a player that Pittsburgh didn't want to risk exposing the expansion draft, I find it hard to believe Fleury's trade value would not have been higher and worth more to the Pens than the player Vegas would have chose. I know Fleury had a no-trade clause, but if he's willing to waive this to go to Vegas, who were expected to be a bottom-five team before the year began, I'm sure he would have been willing to waive his no-trade clause for an opportunity to start with another team. I know I'm just a meager instrumentation salesman, but none of it makes any sense to me. That from Dustin in Edmonton. Well, Dustin, there were really um, three options um, that the... uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins had vis-a-vis Fleury uh, prior to the expansion draft. Option number one was to trade Marc-Andre Fleury, but only to a destination of his choice because he had a full no-trade and full no-move clause, so they needed his cooperation to trade him. Um, number two was Marc-Andre Fleury to sign the waiver on his no-move clause and allow himself to be exposed and taken, potentially taken, um, by the Vegas Golden Knights. And, and that situation, more so than any other one, took away the gun-to-the-head situation that Pittsburgh was in vis-a-vis Fleury. Because if Marc-Andre Fleury did not waive his no-move clause to allow himself to be exposed, then Pittsburgh would have had to invoke option number three, which would have been to buy Fleury out prior to the expansion draft but that comes with a price, and the price, of course, is using is uh, is eating up dead cap space with Flurry's buyout money over the next four seasons because he had two years left on his deal. Uh, and the secondary part of that would have been um, if they didn't want to buy him out, then they would have had to expose or trade uh, Matt Murray, the younger of the two goaltenders, and that wasn't something they wanted to do. So, Dustin, in Edmonton, I understand you're asking why did Pittsburgh have to offer a premium to Vegas for something that Vegas would have probably done anyways. And I think what it really boils down to is that Pittsburgh wanted to make sure that they did right by Marc-Andre Fleury and that this was all arranged fairly early in the process. This wasn't something that was cooked up the night before the expansion draft. It was done weeks, if not months, in advance because Fleury wanted to know where he was going to go, and it gave him an opportunity to finish the season, basically, with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and ultimately to win another Stanley Cup. And Pittsburgh uh, and Marc-Andre Fleury, there's special status there, And, and I think that's the reason why the premium ultimately was paid and that Fleury ultimately decided that going to the expansion team was where he wanted to go. If I remember correctly, I think he had an option to be traded to the Calgary Flames um, uh, prior to the expansion draft and and chose not to go down that road and had decided that he was fully committed to the... uh, to the going to Vegas. So in any case, it's basically the special status that Fleury has, and they wanted to make sure he was taken care of and that his fate and future was absolutely 100% guaranteed and that he was fully and totally in control of it. And really, giving up the second-round pick was really just a thank you for Marc-Andre Fleury allowing himself to be exposed in the expansion draft and for Pittsburgh to be able to keep Matt Murray in the fold. Next question is from Jeff Gilman in Chicago. He says, Bob, I would love to hear your perspective on hitting with the backside, similar to the hit that uh, Braden McNabb put on Evgeny Kuznetsov last night. Not a new technique, but I can't think of an example 
where NHL player safety fined or suspended a player for a similar type of hit. Unfortunate injury for Kuznetsov, but not a dirty hit, in my opinion. And Jeff's email, of course, came on Thursday, May 31st, so right after Game 2 and the McNabb hit on Kuznetsov. I did not have a problem with the uh, McNabb hit on Kuznetsov. Um, obviously, neither did Kuznetsov, based on the way he came back and, and played the next game. We all thought he broke his arm or separated his shoulder or did some severe damage to himself, and all he did was come out in Game 3 and, and be the absolute star of the game. But uh, in any case, that, that's McNabb's trademark hit, and, and that is a step-up in the neutral zone, but a step-up where he basically launches himself ass-first into the player. Now, here's where it can go off the rails. Um, if you saw the end of that hit, um, McNabb, as he uses his backside, really launches upwards. And, and that's okay. You can get away with that as long as you're leading with your backside. And that's where the principal point of contact ends up being. But you've also got to be careful. If you don't time that hit absolutely perfectly, there's a lot of things that can go drastically wrong with it. And as I said, at the tail end of that McNabb hit on Kuznetsov, McNabb's left arm starts to get up and a little bit wild. And the, the, the tricep or the elbow kind of came up and creased Kuznetsov in the head. And it wasn't enough contact for it to be considered a headshot. But I'll tell you what, if you mistime that hit and that left arm isn't tucked in uh, and McNabb throws it pretty, pretty uh, forcefully, um, that left arm could become a weapon. And if, it hits, if you miss body on body and that left arm goes through the guy's head, then it's all kinds of problems for McNabb and the guy who gets hit. And, and if you go back to, I want to say it was, uh, what, 2011? Memorial Cup, I think it was in Mississauga. Uh, Braden McNabb, who was playing for the Kootenai Ice at the time, stepped up on Owen Sound attack forward Joey Hishon in the neutral zone, similar to that, um, but missed with the uh, the backside and connected with his left arm on Joey Hishon's head. And Joey Hishon was badly injured on the play. Um, he didn't play hockey for another 22 months after that and had all sorts of concussion-related problems because of that hit. McNabb got suspended for one game in the Memorial Cup tournament. Um, so the cautionary tale there is uh, the McNabb hit on Kuznetsov was fine, but if it's not timed absolutely perfectly, then it's the type of hit that has the potential to do serious damage and cost McNabb a lot of games and uh, maybe cost somebody else some pretty significant injury. Next question, and it's a good one, call, comes from Michael Hofer, or Hofer in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mr. McKenzie, as always, thank you for your insight. After watching my hometown Winnipeg Jets finally bow out of the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs to the Golden Knights, I do have a question regarding something that occurred in the third period. With under five minutes to go, Lucas Abiza ices the puck, then proceeds to the bench. As he was the one who iced the puck, and frankly, it wasn't even close, I don't understand how Vegas was not assessed a bench minor penalty for delay of game for trying to either sneak in a line change following the icing or what seems to me to be an obvious ploy to get an extra 30 to 45 seconds of rest for a tired line before a critical defensive zone faceoff. If I recall correctly, this isn't the first time something like this had happened in the series either. Is this something that may be brought up to the competition committee in the offseason? Um, all righty. So that's the question from Michael, and it's a good one. And at the time, um, the precise moment that icing happened, I noticed right away what, what Vegas was trying to do. And what they did was they immediately... As, as the players were coming back towards the zone, they threw an extra player out onto the ice. And then what happens is now you're getting ready to line up for a face-off. And instead of five skaters being on the ice, there are six skaters on the ice. So now a little confusion ensues. And they're trying to figure out who was the right guy to get off and who's the right guy to stay on. And I couldn't agree more with Michael. This should, anytime there's an icing and you're not allowed to make a line change, teams should not have the ability to, to fool around and throw an extra player out there to try and muddy the waters as to who's on or who's off. 
And uh, obviously there are sometimes close calls where as the icing is taking place, players are racing to the bench. And I understand that one a little bit. And in fact, we saw this happen to Vegas in the cup final against Washington. It was actually Washington that did it. And Washington bought themselves a minute and five seconds of extra rest um, because they did the same thing. They threw some extra guys onto the ice and created confusion. And by the time the center uh, does the obligatory get kicked out of the face-off circle, um, the, the whole notion that you've got a tired group on the ice, they're a lot less tired after the shenanigans trying to play that around. So I do think this is something the referees and linesmen are going to have to start to crack down on because more and more coaches are going to see that teams are getting away with it and that immediately throwing an extra player on the ice and creating the confusion of getting a skater off for the face-off uh, and which one's the right one to get off, uh, that's not cool. As we get through the Stanley Cup final here and get closer and closer to the NHL entry draft, we'll start to hear a lot more uh, rumors and gossip vis-a-vis uh, -vis trade talk and, and things that are going on. A uh, couple of the little items that have been floating around lately that I've uh, heard about. Um, keep an eye on the Florida Panthers. Um, defenseman Alex Petrovic um, may be available in trade. And, and I mentioned Petrovic simply because there's obviously a tie-in here to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, the Florida Panthers, of course, um, protected Petrovic and Mark Pissick um, at the time of the expansion draft. Their emphasis was on protecting those defensemen. And, of course, they ended up exposing Jonathan Marcheseau and uh, moving Riley Smith to the Vegas Golden Knights. And we all know how that's worked out for Florida. We all know how that's worked out for um, Vegas, not to belabor the point on Florida's end of it. But uh, the reality is that under head coach Bob Bugner last season, Petrovic really had a tough time establishing himself in their top four or top five and um, didn't have a regular spot. And that's only going to get worse a situation, I would think, uh, now that the Florida Panthers have signed the Russian free agent defenseman Bogdan Kiselevich, I believe is Ray Ferraro told me how to pronounce it. But in any case, the Russian UFAD uh, that Florida just signed is uh, is likely to play ahead of Petrovic. So with um, Petrovic up for his qualifying offer and looking for a contract and what have you, um, I believe that's a, a player um, who could be in play. Um, there's been a lot of talk out of Pittsburgh about Phil Kessel's situation. Uh, Jimmy Rutherford the other day and was quoted in the Pittsburgh papers and The Athletic and some other spots. Trying to calm the waters on that one just a little bit. It started to take on a life of its own right after the Penguins were eliminated um, when it was suggested in Pittsburgh media, quite correctly, that um, Kessel is, is eminently available. Um, and I think that's true of virtually every player in Pittsburgh outside of Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. Those are the only true two untouchables on the Pittsburgh Penguins. Obviously, Matt Murray and Nat, Jake Gensel up front, are young guys that they don't have any intention of trading, um, but they technically don't fall under the category of Crosby, Malkin, 100% untouchable. They'll listen, I guess, on Murray or Gensel, but the reality is I don't, I don't see them trading. Kessel, on the other hand, um, uh, for the right price, I, I think they would move him, but I'm not sure that that'll necessarily happen. That said, um, the Los Angeles Kings are believed to be one of a number of teams that have some interest in Kessel. And that was the other thing that I was going to bring up on, in terms of the gossip. The LA Kings are looking for scoring wingers. Uh, Jeff Skinner in Carolina is somebody that they have some interest in. Max Pacioretty in Montreal would be someone. I, I don't know that they're necessarily looking ahead to free agency at a guy like James Van Riemsdyk as much as they are trying to find guys that have at least a year left on their deal at a fixed cost um, and uh, somebody that they could actually trade for right now. So uh, keep an eye on the Kings as it relates to scoring wingers. Keep an eye on guys like Kessel. Um, Skinner in Carolina is, uh, is quite likely to be dealt. And, um, and we talked before about Buffalo potentially trading Ryan O'Reilly, the center there. Um, Carolina's interested in him. I, I could see Buffalo having some interest in in Jeff Skinner, to be honest. Um, I think they're looking at uh, all areas to try and upgrade themselves in Buffalo. So um, anyways, uh, there's some gossip to, uh, to keep an eye on.
Next question comes from uh, a long time and original Bobcast listener. I know that because on one of the very first episodes, we asked a question from Ben Clancy in Peterborough, Ontario. And uh, this would probably be the third or fourth time that Ben's gotten a question answered on the Bobcast. He must ask good questions. Hey, Bob, I saw that Ottawa decided not to send Colorado their first overall pick this year for the Matt Duchesne trade, despite the fact they are now picking fourth overall. I'm wondering if this is because they intend on being better next year or because they really value the potential prospect at this position. Well, I think it's probably a little or a lot of both. Um, they certainly like to think they're going to be better next year. And there is a calculated risk there. I mean, if they're not better next year, and if they turn out to be a lottery team, and they because they don't have lottery protection on that pick, my goodness, uh, if they were to miss the playoffs and win the lottery and end up with the first overall pick, potentially Jack Hughes, the dynamic center who uh, plays for the U.S. under-17, under-18 program, um, Ottawa could be in dire straits over that. But uh, in the meantime, they know picking fourth this year. Um, the expectation is that Rasmus Dahlin, of course, will be number one, that Andrei Svechnikov, whether it's Carolina picking at number two or somebody else picking at number two, is likely to be gone. Uh, people wonder what the Montreal Canadiens will do at number three. Will they just take Philip Zadina, who's the consensus choice at that point? Or would they potentially look at Jesperi Kotkaniemi, the big Finnish center, that early, even though he's maybe uh, uh, not a consensus top three or four guy? Would they draft positionally uh, for the Montreal Canadiens at number three? That's some of the debate and talk that's going on leading up to the draft. We'll get a better handle on that as time goes by. But the bottom line is that um, if that were the case, they, they took somebody other than Zadina, well, then Ottawa would have the choice between Phillips Adina or Brady Kachuk would be the two obvious choices. Um, so uh, the fact that they like the prospects there is probably the big reason. They think they're going to get a really terrific player at number four. Um, there's even been some talk that they would entertain the notion of trading down, but I think you're going to hear a lot of that from all these teams uh, in the draft, everybody wants to trade down, and to which I would say, well, if everybody wants to trade down, thinking that the player they get at four is as good as the player as they get might get at six or seven or eight, um, or if it be at Carolina at two or Montreal at three, um, who's prepared to pay a premium to move up? In other words, all these teams that want to move down three, four, five, six spots um, because they think they're going to get a good, as good a player three, four, five, six spots later as they are where they are right now, well, then this, if the same rationale applies to those teams that are trading up, why would a team pay a premium to trade up for a guy that isn't appreciably better or worse than the one they're going to get anyways? So um, we'll see where that one shakes out. But uh, I would have to think that uh, Kachuk is a logical choice at four um, for the Ottawa Senators. They don't really have... Anybody quite like a Brady Kachuk, but um, by the same token, we'll have to wait and see if Zadine is available. And and listen, there's some real good defensemen there as well, um, with uh, Evan Bouchard and uh, uh, Noah Dobson and uh, Quinn Hughes and uh, Adam Boquist. So um, lots for the Sens to pick from. But the bottom line is they believe at number four they're going to get a real good player and that they're not going to be so bad next year that they're going to end up with the number one pick that would go to Colorado. Next question comes from Arvind. And Arvind says, Hi, Mr. McKenzie. Thanks for all the work you do with TSN and the podcast. Always a great listen. Do you think Oliver ekman Larson will re-sign in Arizona? Obviously, uh, we're still almost a year away from his free agency. But of the three top-end defensemen in the 2019 free agent class, Dowdy, Carlson, ekman Larson. It seems like OEL is the most likely to move given the poor performance of his team. If he does leave, who do you think would be his main free agent suitors? And do you think Arizona trades him under any circumstances? Thanks from Arvind. Well, Arvind, uh, we were talking about this on in the recent edition of Insider Trading. And what I said then and what I can tell you now is that the Arizona Coyotes have offered to Oliver Ekman Larson an eight-year deal with an annual average annual value of $8.25 million. 
I believe that's as far as the Coyotes want to go, um, and that's the offer that's on the table. And the ball's really in ekman Larson's court to make a decision. The, all he's got to do is basically say, I'm going to agree to that. Now, keep in mind, from a technical point of view, he's not allowed to sign an extension until July 1st. There's nothing to stop him from agreeing to terms now and and signing it in, in July. But obviously, Arizona wants to get a handle on whether he's prepared to make the long-term commitment. Now, the general sense from within the organization is they're optimistic. They believe that ekman Larson is more likely than not to want to stay for the next eight years in Arizona and take the eight times $8.25 million deal. I'm not saying he's not, um, only that I don't think he's made that final decision yet. Last I heard, he was in France on a, on a vacation, and um, I'm not sure if there's a specific timeline here, but I would have to think in the next week or two, uh, the Arizona Coyotes want to know from ekman Larson and his representatives, is he, is he prepared to commit to that long-term deal with Arizona? Because if he's not, then there's no doubt in my mind that Arizona will try to trade him. And, and I believe that Arizona has kept its options open in that regard. And I don't think that they're, you know, being real proactive on out there picking up the phone and calling teams and saying, hey, do you want to trade for Ekman Larson? But I think they're well aware of which teams are interested in Ekman Larson and that there is ongoing dialogue that if a trade should become necessary, um, how they might go about it. So, um, but the, their priority, no doubt about it is to get ekman Larson signed to that eight-year extension. And it's really up to ekman Larson to decide which he, what he wants to do. And, and in the days and weeks ahead, I believe we'll get an answer on that. Next up, it's Ryan from Raleigh with this question. Hey, Bob, I'm curious what you've heard on the Carolina goaltending situation. Don Waddell has said the same duo will not be back next season. And with a trade or buyout for Scott Darling unlikely, is the writing on the wall for Cam Ward? Is a trade for an established starter an option? Or are they more likely to pursue a veteran free agent like Carter Hutton or Jonathan Bernier? Thanks, Bob. Love the show. That from Ryan from Raleigh. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Ryan. Um, Scott Darling is technically the number one goaltender in Carolina, but he did not play like it at all last year. And quite frankly, I think his performance at the World Championships for Team USA was also a sign of things to come that uh, he's not on top of his game, not even close. And with another three years left on his deal at $4.15 million, um, there's no question that new owner Tom Dundon, who his general philosophy from what we understand is he hates to pay people to not work for him, um, that would sort of rule out a buyout, I guess. Um, but boy, oh boy, right now... Um, the outlook for Darling as as a, a number one goalie in Carolina, there's there's no reason to believe based on how he played last season or at the World Championships that he's suddenly going to flip the switch and be what they thought he was going to be when they got him from the Chicago Blackhawks as a free agent. Um, I do believe that they're going to go out in free agency and try to find somebody, but I also think from what I understand, um, there's some budgetary concerns in terms of how much they're willing to pay a free agent goaltender. Um, Cam Ward right now, I do not believe is in the picture as that free agent goaltender that they're going to look elsewhere, but it's also one that could be revisited down the road depending on what happens as they get closer to free agency. The free agent goaltender that everybody seems to be thinking is the answer to their, their, uh, their questions in net is Philip Grubauer, who started the playoffs, of course, game one and game two with the Washington Capitals. He had a good run down the stretch in the regular season, kind of took away the number one job from Brayton Holpe for a while. Um, but obviously, after the first two games, both losses to the Columbus Blue Jackets, Holpe re-secured the spot in net and has been fantastic since then. Um, but there are a lot of teams that are high on Grubauer as a potential free agent. Carolina may or may not be one of them, but uh, that's kind of the plan for Carolina goaltending, and uh, I would suggest that it, it sounds to me like a plan that is, as they like to say, fraught with peril.
Next question is from Bradley W. Hey, Bob, avid listener and longtime fan of your work. Any chances that Rick Nash re-signs with Boston? I know the cap isn't working in the B's favor, especially with the Charlie McAvoy being a year out from his entry-level contract expiring. What are your thoughts? That from Bradley W. Well, Bradley, from my understanding is I don't believe since the Bruins were eliminated from the playoffs that there's been any real dialogue between uh, Rick Nash's camp and the Bruins on a new contract. And I think your instincts are probably correct insofar as it would be difficult to uh, to get Rick Nash signed. And uh, and I guess some people would say, well, the perception is you go out and add these free agents at the deadline and they don't pay off for you in, in terms of uh, um, going deep into the playoffs. And obviously Nash had some injuries to deal with, uh, most notably a concussion with the Bruins that might have derailed what otherwise uh, he got off to a quick start there and then kind of got derailed. But uh, in any uh, case, I don't anticipate at this time, subject to change, uh, Rick Nash being back with the Boston Bruins next season. Okay, let's take a brief break from asking questions here and maybe we'll go to a little listener feedback. Dear Bob, I had a chance to listen to your recent podcast today and wanted to extend my gratitude for you raising the subject of living organ donation, even if I'm not the direct beneficiary of getting this message out there. I hope that it might make a difference for even one person out there. So thank you very much again. If you're in Vancouver anytime, feel free to give me a shout. Best and thank you. That from Mark Ferry. And if you remember our prior podcast, of course, Mark was a guy who wrote about living organ donation and his need for a new kidney and being a Vancouver Canuck fan. Um, so happy to um, help further the cause on that, uh, uh, Mark. And uh, as a reminder, if you go to bemydonor.ca, that's bemydonor.ca, um, you can find out Mark's story and uh, a little bit about the whole concept of organ donation, specifically living organ donation so uh, next up from uh, on the listener feedback front is our good friend Fred Bates if you remember the last episode um, we uh, we read a number of Fred's multiple emails um, where he's very 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 upset about the success of the Vegas Golden Knights this year and uh, after we uh, read those Fred sent some more emails to us so let's get to those Dear Bob, thanks for allowing me to vent on your show. In no way do I wish to downplay the contributions of Vegas management, scouting, players, or coaching. The fact is the, inten the NHL intentionally set out and created a system to make Vegas competitive in its very first year. And in doing so, they had to make sure other already existing NHL teams would be less competitive, which is simply wrong and is such a large error and miscalculation that Bettman should fall on his Vegas sword and resign. In essence, if Vegas wins the cup, it really is bred of shame as Vegas has never really earned it or deserved it, but was in many ways given to them by Batman and the owners. In fact, the owners actually screwed their own teams for $16 million each by doing this deal. Just go ask Winnipeg. I wonder what bonus or commission Bettman got for putting this Vegas deal together. The NHL owners and Bettman are getting exactly what they deserve for their greed, backlash, and bad karma. Believe me, if you were interview off the record all NHL general managers, coaches, scouts, and players, they would tell you this is not right, and they're not at all happy. However, they would not dare say a word because they would be sanctioned by Bettman and the owners. Vegas is dominating its opponents, Bob, on the way to the Cup, and in reality, a first-year team should not even have a sniff at the Stanley Cup. The only dues Vegas has paid in the 500 is the $500 million that their Tinseltown billionaire put down. Well, at least we all know what the price the Stanley Cup can be bought for, $500 million. You 500, sorry, 500 million U.S. dollars. Batman, believe me, is praying every day that Vegas does not win the cup. Although watching Batman's face while he presents the cup to Vegas would be priceless. Batman and the owners managed to throw out the door 100 years of tradition and integrity by committing one greedy, stupid mistake, which they're going to repeat again a year from now and are doing this with no shame. Lastly, I wonder what competition laws may have been broken. Perhaps a call to the Canadian Competition Agency would be interesting. Thanks. That's from Fred Bates. And Fred sent that to me on uh, May the 23rd. And uh, a day later, he came back with one more. But he was shortened to the point a day later. He says, okay, 
I finally have to give in and admit there is one miracle regarding the Vegas Knights, and that is Batman and the owners are going to get away with this scam. The bigger the lie, the more the masses will believe it. So there you have it, Fred Bates on his angst over the Vegas Golden Knights. The next question is actually three questions, although it's really just one question because these three guys are all sharing a brain. Uh, So Jason writes, um, Hey, Bob, I've always scratched my head in the cap era, more so in latter years of current CBA, with escalating cap escrow inflators. Why agents, players, teams negotiate contracts in terms of dollars and not as a percentage of available team cap space, especially for the star talent. Why do you think that is? I'm really interested to hear your take on that. Uh, And then we've got a question from Shane, uh, who said, Hi, Bob. Thanks for putting together this podcast. As an ex-patriot living in Wisconsin, I enjoy listening to the TSM podcast, keeping up with the hockey coverage we don't always get down here. My question is, is there anything in the CBA that prevents a contract from being done where player compensation is based off of cap percentage as opposed to a dollar amount. For instance, a player receives 10% of the cap in any given year, meaning this year they would make $7.5 million, and if the cap were to increase to $80 million next year, their salary would become $8 million. The risk, of course, would be a pay cut if for some reason the cap were to go down, but that seems unlikely right now. Not so sure owners and GMs would be a fan of this, but I'm guessing players would like getting a little more every year as the cap goes up. Keep up the great work, Shane. And the third one comes from John DaCosta in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, who said all the talk last week or so about Austin Matthews possibly making more dollars, but similar cap percentage Connor McDavid got me wondering, is there any rule or guideline that prevents players from signing a contract for a percentage of cap instead of a firm dollar amount? And I don't need to read any more of the question because as Shane and Jason and John, they're all basically asking the same question. And the short answer is, you're not allowed, obviously, in the terms of the CBA to ask for a percentage of cap. Um, agents ask for a percentage of cap when they do the deal, um, i.e. Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, Connor McDavid. They all went for 16 to 17% of the cap at the time they negotiate the deal. But you can't take it into a floating situation year after year. And, and the reasons are obvious for that one, I think. Um, There's only so many dollars in the system. And when the cap goes up, because revenues go up, um, those dollars need to be allocated to players who are unrestricted free agents or restricted free agents to allow for salary increases um, for players that are without contracts. So that's where the new money in the system is dedicated to go. If you simply gave percentage of cap, um, as restricted free agents' contracts come up, as unrestricted free agents' contracts comes up, there'd be no new money in the system because the existing players under contract um, with their escalators based on um, uh, a salary percentage of cap um, would get all those new dollars that come into the system, and that wouldn't be fair. Here's a question that's a bit of a change of pace. It comes from Derek in Listwell, Ontario. Hi, Bob. Thoroughly enjoy your work. My question for you is, why do NHL referees never have facial hair? Aside from the former great Bill McCreary's mustache, I've never seen a modern NHL referee that wasn't clean-shaven, much less with a full-blown beard. What gives? Well, Derek, um, in the old days, the National Hockey League very specifically specified uh, in writing that referees must be clean-shaven, although there was also a provision in there for quote-unquote a well-groomed mustache. And quite a few referees over the years um, took advantage of the quote-unquote well-groomed mustache clause. Um, You mentioned Billy McCreary, uh, Don Van Massenhoven. I think Paul Dvorsky at one time had a pretty good duster going. And Terry Gregson um, also had a very ample and uh, lush red mustache. So, um, and while I think uh, they, there's no longer written specifics in terms of uh, uh, what the, the referees can or can't do that way, um, they are expected to be uh, uh, well-groomed. And I think the implication is no beards and uh, the, the, the mustache clause is still very much uh, alive in spirit. So if any NHL referee wants to grow a well-groomed mustache, well, then knock yourself out. Next question comes from loyal Bobcast listener Tommy Enroth. He says, I really enjoyed your thoughts about what seems to be the two-horse race for the 2020 draft 
between Lafreniere and Byfield. What are your thoughts about these players and which one do you think is better and will end up as the number one pick in 2020? Well, Tommy's talking about Alexi Lafreniere, who played this past season as a rookie with the Ramuski Oceanics, same team Sidney Crosby played for, Vincent Cavalier as well. And he put up fantastic numbers in his rookie season in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. 42 goals, 80 points in 60 games. He had four goals and seven points in seven playoff games. And right now he's projected as a potential number one overall pick in the 2020 draft. Of course, he's the same age as Jack Hughes, um, but Lafreniere is a late birthday. So while Jack Hughes is projected to be the number one pick in the 2019 NHL draft. Um, Lafreniere, because he was born on October 11th or after September 15th, gets the late birthday designation and carries over to 2020. As for the player, the other player that Tommy Enroth referenced, Byfield, that's, of course, Quinton Byfield, he was the first overall selection in the Ontario Hockey League minor midget draft Uh, went to the Sudbury Wolves first overall. Uh, Byfield is a huge hulking center with skill and speed. Uh, He's got to be 6'3", 6'4", up there anyways. And um, he played for the York Simcoe Express in the uh, Ontario Minor Hockey Association ETA or Eastern AAA League. Um, What I'll say is this. Um, It's it's way too early to put pressure on Byfield um, as a potential top pick In the 2020 draft, he may well be that. And people would assume that with his size and speed and skill and status as the number one pick in the OHL draft, that that would be the case. But I'm a little more cautious with kids that haven't played a game of junior hockey before we start anointing them um, as potential number one overall picks or elite picks in a a 2020 draft. That's not to take anything away from him. I I think it probably just helps him not to have that kind of pressure designation. Lafreniere we can talk about in those terms because, I mean, if you look at his numbers, the goals and points, he put up numbers very similar in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League this season to Philip Zadina, who is going to go in the top three or four of this year's NHL draft. So I think it's fair to project on Lafreniere because he's played a full year of major junior hockey and established some credentials. Um, But on Quinton Byfield, we should just let the young man uh, uh, have his first season in the OHL next year with Sudbury. And uh, he hopes to do for the Sudbury Wolves what fellow uh, new market and fellow or hockey client uh, Connor McDavid did for the Erie Otters. So uh, good luck to Quinton Byfield with his first year in the OHL next year. And uh, can't wait to see what Lafreniere does. Uh, as a follow-up to that uh, tremendous rookie season. Well, I've got a bazillion questions here that I could answer, but um, time is of the essence. I've got to get ready to go off to game four of the Stanley Cup final um, here in D.C. Looking forward to it. Should be great. So let's um, finish off this episode of the Bobcast um, with the same sort of important stuff that we started it with which is to suggest during the Stanley Cup final, what could be more important than Netflix? Or, on this next question, hotel loyalty reward programs. This comes from Luke Manton in Parsippany, New Jersey. Hey, Bob, wanted to stray from hockey talk for a moment, because as I write this, my devils are on the brink of elimination, down 3-1 in their series to the Lightning. Well, we all know what happened to the Devils, and for that matter, the Lightning. And here we are. And Luke picks it up. Can we get some thoughts on the recently announced combined loyalty programs between Marriott, SPG, Ritz-Carlton that will take effect later this summer? I know SPG and Marriott merged a while back, but now your beloved SPG brand will fall under one giant umbrella along with numerous other hotel brands. Will you remain loyal to SPG properties despite the fact they will lose their unique branding? Thankfully, your SPG points will convert to the new program at a 1 to 3 ratio come August, so you won't lose any value as SPG points currently are quite more valuable than their Marriott counterparts. Appreciate the time and keep up the great work. Respectfully, Luke Manton, Persippany, New Jersey. You're talking my language, Luke. Hotel loyalty reward programs. It's important to, to, to status is what you want. Points are important too, but 
little status never hurts and to get platinum or platinum elite or whatever the various things are. But here's the thing. I, I was an SPG guy, although often stayed at Marriott. Um, both fine establishments. And as you point out, they're all under one umbrella now anyways. But here's the key. Um, up until they announced recently in the last month or two that come August, they're fully merging the programs. Um, that's when all your stays and all your nights for SPG or Marriott get put together. And that allowed us during this cup final to be a lot more flexible with our uh, booking of hotels. So um, it's, you know, there's not a huge difference between SPG and Marriott a lot of the times. Um, I'm a big Weston guy, but nevertheless, um, the important thing is to get good hotels in good locations and get credit for the stays so that you um, make sure you maintain your status and do well on the point front as well. I mean, let's not kid anybody. These hotel points are important. <laughs> um, come vacation time. I, I'm going to Italy this summer with my lovely wife, and uh, we are flying from Toronto to Rome on uh, our Air Canada points. And uh, four nights in the Amalfi Coast in Positano. No points there because there was no points hotel. But uh, three nights in Tuscany um, and two nights in Rome. And those five nights, uh, three in Tuscany, two in Rome, all on points. So uh, it's important stuff. In any case, uh, the, the full merger between SPG and Marriott um, has given us that much more flexibility on where we stay during the cup final and getting full value for points and stays and status and all those good things. So in answer to Luke's question, um, the, the merger thing is going well. Um, as are our stays and uh, nights and points. So there you have it. Anyways, uh, listen, enjoy game four of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, enjoy the rest of it, however it goes. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating month as we uh, uh, wrap up our last two episodes of the Bobcast after this one. Uh, there's going to be a lot happening between now and the NHL entry draft. And, of course, leading up to July 1st, free agent day and July 2nd, vacation day. So uh, have a good one. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend. <laughs>